Hello, everyone. Today's episode is with Jennifer Novokovich. Jen is a Canadian cosmetic chemist, science communicator, and podcaster at the EcoWell. For the first few years of her career, Jen worked as a science writer in the wellness and cosmetic space and as a biochemistry tutor before she went back to school to study cosmetic chemistry. She has been working as a cosmetic formulator and consultant since 2016, where she helps brands develop formulations, navigate North American regulations with fact-checking for content, and in developing science communication strategies. Jen is also in the process of completing a master's in environmental science and further graduate studies in the science and policy of climate change. In today's episode, we dive deep into the realms of the clean beauty industry. We talk about the misconceptions around the safety, regulations, and sustainability of these products. We also discuss the burning question of what makes a beauty product clean? I enjoyed learning from Jen during this episode. And if you are interested in learning more from her, please check out her podcast at The EcoWell. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good morning, Jen. Excited to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So this is a topic I've been really excited to dive deeper on because I literally know nothing about cosmetic science as we were talking about prior to coming on here. And you are going to teach us all about what clean beauty means in the industry. I mean, I I don't even really understand it. So why don't we start there? Why don't we start with like this term clean beauty? What does it mean? Where did it come from? And you know, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, clean beauty is like in food. It's a marketing term. It's, I would say, a denigrating market marketing term, assuming that other products are dirty. But the assumption is that these products that are quote unquote clean will be better for the environment and better for human health, which is kind of detached from reality if you actually dig in. But I'll just leave that there. And it was kind of a progression <laughs> from, well, a few things. So first, the appetite for natural cosmetics, because we have this assumption, like it's a fallacy that natural is better. But then we have, over the last few years, or I would say maybe even before that, started to realize, oh, shoot, maybe natural isn't always better. And then this has been the alternative from natural to to clean. And I think we're now moving towards like maybe blue beauty, which I've heard in. Mm. I I can't stand these these phrases. But the natural component is one part of that progression. And then the mm-hmm. other part was the initial free from claims that started from sulfate free in a salon shampoo product. And then people realize like, oh, wow, this worked really well. Fearmongering yeah. is a really effective marketing strategy. Let's try it again. And they did paraben-free. And now mm. fast forward to today, there's like, I don't know, I, like very long list, over 20 plus uh, free from claims on many quote unquote clean brands. And so it's just it's just feeding into these assumptions about product safety and sustainability. 
Now, not to interrupt you, I want to ask you something about that. Now, obviously, from coming from what I was doing, which was, you know, a quote unquote Instagram influencer, right? Working with these brands one on one. And obviously, so many of them, especially beauty brands, would be like, please mention that we are free from this, 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 this. And so, here, from my perspective, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know anything about cosmetic science. Okay, fine. That sounds good. You're free from this. Great. But do most of these products even like, (laughs) I guess the question is, when you have this product, does it even typically have that chemical anyway? Or no? You know, so it's like, sure, you're free from parabens, you're free from sulfate, all these things. But were those ever even used in your product prior? Or are you just using that as like a marketing ploy to like push your product to the top because you're trying to compete with X, Y, and Z? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, when you're looking at product categories, this it's it depends on the ingredient because there are a lot of when, for example, Beauty Counter goes and says that they are adhering to EU guidelines and they're, they're removing X thousand ingredients from their products. And many of those ingredients weren't using cosmetics ever. There's mm-hmm. that, but those Uh-oh. are like the lists of free from claims. So then those lists of free from claims, a lot of the times... These are ingredients that were traditionally used, but they are misinterpreting the science for marketing gain. So Mm. as an example, the initial claim sulfate free. Well, firstly, let's just put this out there. Sulfate is a part of SLS and SLES. It's also a part of many other molecules in cosmetics and beyond. But anyways... When we're talking about, most people assume we're talking about SLS and SLES, Mm -hmm. then they're like, okay, well, sulfates, SLS must be bad. And, you know, there's actually, in the context of formulations, there's like no evidence to support the idea that it's going to be harmful. People will say, well, it's going to dry out your skin. It's so, it's so harsh. Well, it depends on the formulation. You can use it at a low concentration in combination with other surfactants to produce, these actually produce new molecules to produce like the most gentle products you could really have when we're talking about cleansers. And then in contrast, you could use other sulfate free, quote unquote, surfactants and produce very harsh cleansers. So it all kind of hinges on the formulation or you can look at parabens. So people will say paraben free, parabens cause breast cancer. You know, in the context of what's used in cosmetics as they are used, there's no evidence to support that idea that parabens, again, as used in cosmetics, that's the important point, (laughs) cause breast cancer or for example, actually have a a substantial endocrine effect. So when you're talking about, usually people are concerned about estrogenicity. So comparing parabens to estradiol, which they would have to outcompete at the estrogen receptor to have an estrogenic effect, they are around 10,000 times less estrogenic. The body of evidence does not support the proposed hazards, hazard does not equal risk, uh, that is communicated to consumers. But at at the end of the day, people are selling, when they make these free from claims, they're selling these products by, by fear mongering, because then consumers are like, 
oh, well, all the rest of the products must have parabens. All the rest of the products must have sulfates. All the rest of the products right. must have silicones. And then yeah. therefore they are bad, but those those claims are not aligned with evidence. And so this is a big reason why in the in the EU, I think it was 2016, maybe 2017, I don't quite remember the year, the European Commission moved to now this is a guideline and it depends depending on the 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 country for how they implement this guideline. Sometimes it's strict, sometimes it's not, but they are their guidance to industry in the EU is these free from claims are not allowed because they mislead consumers. North America oh. hasn't taken that stance, but the reason why they did it is exactly the reason why I'm telling you right now. They are baseless fear-mongering claims. They are denigrating claims that they, in my opinion, do not belong on when we're talking about like ethical ethical brands that yeah. includes ethical marketing. They do not belong on packages, in my opinion. And I guess in the EU's opinion as well. Right. So you go to the EU and you won't see products on the shelf that say paraben free or sulfate free or anything like that. Well, so this comes down to like it's a it it depends on the country because this okay. is guidance. So some countries have uh, okay. decided to make this a firm you cannot do this and other countries have been a little softer. And just like in North America, there are also small brands that fall through the regulatory cracks in mm-hmm. the you're in Europe as well. So yeah, yeah. So there's also like all these assumptions like, oh, North American products are so unsafe. Uh, FDA doesn't do a good job regulating products. But when you actually go and dive a little bit deeper, there are also issues in Europe. No regulatory system is perfect. And when I actually, t- this will be a surprise to listeners, but when I actually talk to regulators, safety assessors in in Europe, and I have quite a few conversations with these assessors on my podcast, if people want to listen, their comment is that the FDA actually has teeth. They're like the policeman and they don't mm-hmm. have it because for them, mm-hmm. it depends on the country. They're like some countries are better at regulating cosmetics, mm-hmm. are more mm-hmm. strict, like UK no longer in in uh, in Europe, but mm-hmm. <laughs> and some aren't. Yeah. Uh, so just to put it up there. Yeah. I mean, it would make sense, right? From a, a consumer standpoint, you think, okay, I walk into, you know, Target, I'm looking at a shelf, I need to buy a shampoo. And I'm looking through, looking through, and I see all of these shampoos that have you know, sulfate free, paraben free, blah, 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 free, everything free. And then, you know, you come across this one shampoo and, it, and it's got this pretty packaging and everything, but it doesn't have, it doesn't say those things on the bottle. I mean, I don't know anyone, if they can afford it, you know, that would go for that bottle if they see these other ones that have all these, you know, marketing ploys on there that are trying to like grab your attention saying that they're free of all these like chemicals. You know what I mean? I just wanted to quickly add, because I didn't mention this when I was talking about sulfates, I only mentioned the safety side, because I just wanted to put this in because there's always this one person that says, but what about the environmental impact? It's bad for the environment. It doesn't degrade. It actually does. It biodegrades very quickly within like a day. So so just to put it out there, the evidence when we're looking at ecotoxicology or the ecotoxological effect 
is actually decent. So yeah. like these are like kind of like, ba- especially when you're comparing it to other ingredients. And there are trade-offs when you're using certain surfactants in ways that people don't always realize with, for example, maybe like concentrated surfactant systems for detergents and potential for water savings and environmental impact. It's really complicated, but just to put it out there. Yeah. So I don't want to talk badly about any specific company, but I do want to talk to you specifically about Beauty Counter only because as, as we were mentioning before we started the episode, I was, uh, I use the term loosely as a consultant because I wasn't like a hardcore consultant where I was like trying to really, really drive building my team or, or anything. I just really loved like three of their products. And to be honest, didn't like many of the other ones, but the three that I liked, I really did talk about a lot. I, I liked them. But I mean, obviously they're an MLM and I've suggested, oh gosh, what is that? What is that podcast? Do you know what it is, Jen? The the podcast? Yes, thank you. Okay. So (laughs) you're like, the dream. I know what it is. That is an amazing podcast series to listen to. For those listening, it's just an amazing podcast series about multi-level marketing and pyramid schemes. And it's just very, very eye-opening in general. So that being said, Beauty Counter is an MLM. And, you know, I struggled with all of their messaging, you know, their emails and texts and all this stuff about how they were so much better because they follow the EU guidelines and regulations and all of that. <laughs> what is that about? Like, I, and I know you kind of spoke about it very briefly where you said, you know, they claim that they don't want any of these ingredients in their products, but those ingredients wouldn't be in cosmetics anyways. Like you would never use those ingredients in cosmetics. So why even mention that they're free of it if it's not something that they would typically use in it? Is everything that they're claiming just kind of like smoke and mirrors to make it look like they're this company that's trying to... Um, I know that the... what What's the founder's name? Do you know? Uh, I oh, forget. Her name? I yeah. forget her name. Uh, She's like always trying to go to Congress and like pass all these things. And so yeah. I think that people think that they're really trying to make change. But in your opinion, as a cosmetic scientist, like do they have like are are they actually making positive progress or is this just, you know, a, a marketing ploy to like get pe- more people to sign up for beauty counter like what do you think uh you know i feel <laughs> like, like almost anything <laughs> <laughs> uh, i feel almost question. triggered by this question because i was on a debate <laughs> with uh lindsay dowell who's she's not the founder but she's she's one of the like main faces of beauty counter and i think she might lead their like science and sustainability action okay i, I was on a debate with her about clean beauty a few months ago and it Okay, the debate was myself, a scientist, uh, Dr. Ricardo Diaz from the uh, Rutgers University, also a scientist, against Lindsay Dow, no science background. And then uh, this girl, Mackenzie from Biosance, no science background. So it's like, it's like those like the flat earth debates, like bring on some conspiracy (laughs) theorists and then have have scientists. Uh, it, it, so this is kind of this is a kind of a triggering question because sorry, I I Jen. really don't I really really don't like the the marketing <laughs> that they put out. I don't like 
that it's constantly spreading misinformation. Okay, so I'll just kind of dive into each of their claims that you've brought up at least. And to me, I'll just maybe like put the statement at the front. Well, firstly, just so I don't get sued, everything that I'm saying is in my honestly held opinions. <laughs> Please don't sue Period. me. And then Period. also I'll 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 say that this next statement could maybe get me sued, but this is my opinion that I it, it feels very performative. And and so I would agree with the statements that you have made prior. Okay, so digging into some of their claims, we've banned uh, the EU. We've I think they actually say we've banned more than what the EU has banned. The uh, USA only bans 13 ingredients and Canada only 300 or something. And then we do... X thousand. I forget the number. Okay, so you actually go and look at the EU free from list. It includes things like rocket fuel, things that would never be put <laughs> in cosmetic products. Okay, so no one is using that. So the, th- this is a difference in, in regulations where EU is very prescriptive, which has like... There are very good things and then there are trade-offs with that, but they're Mm -hmm. very prescriptive. Whereas in North America, we've taken kind of a common sense approach, uh, which there are pros and cons because in the North American market, it requires that brands have a certain level of scientific background to understand toxicological safety assessments. So the regulation states that it is illegal to sell unsafe products. And if you stick an ingredient in your product that renders your product unsafe, this is cited within the FDA uh, FDNC Act. So people Mm -hmm. can go and refer to that if they want more information. But if you put something in your product that renders the product unsafe, then that product is illegal. And Mm -hmm. so that's in the regulation. And then the other thing that does a really good job keeping companies in check, and you would be you would be surprised with how good of a job it does, is the the fear of litigation in USA has a very litigious population. So people, sorry, people, brands will get sued even if they haven't done anything wrong. So Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. actually, I consult brands who like they're in Canada and so for their insurance as a brand, if they were to put their products in the USA versus if they were to put it in the EU, their insurance rates would be so much higher if they had mm. to put it in the USA because of the the fear of oh. litigation. And Isn't that so crazy. Yeah. So I asked in this debate that I was a part of with Lindsay because she brought this up. And then I, I said to her, can you can you point out one ingredient that is used when you're comparing in- ingredient lists for a brand sold in the EU versus brand sold in the USA? Can you point out one ingredient that is banned in the EU and actually found on a cosmetic product or in a cosmetic product in the USA? And she mm. had no answer for that. Oh. <laughs> and then after, after she she went on her Instagram, I saw to talk about, oh yeah. It came to me. I know what ingredient that is. It's phthalates, phthalates and fragrance. Well, phthalates are actually not banned in Europe. There is one 
phthalate that is currently allowed, which is diethyl phthalate, which is in fragrance, which is what she was talking about. And you know, if she had some background in cosmetic science, perhaps she would know that, but she does not. And so then she was, I'm sorry, I'm passionate about this. I was, I was <laughs> you sound like me every day. You sound like me every day, like passionate about so many things and just like, I, I like can't stop yet. Keep going. I love this. Okay. So, so then she uh, she said phthalates was in fragrance, which, okay, so it's diethyl phthalate that's in fragrance. Diethyl phthalate is demonstrably not endocrine disrupting, and thus it is allowed in cosmetics without re- uh, restrictions in the EU because it is demonstrably safe. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of evidence to support this fact. Um, okay, <laughs> so I just wanted to put it out there. And then the other thing that uh, comes up is like all the all the mm, the work they do in congress so just to give you one example they were a part of a a california toxic free act perhaps you've seen this that was passed oh was it last year or was it the year before it might have been the year before but i was really angry about it with how they how they communicated about this to the public so Hmm. okay they went and had X, I think it was 30 additional ingredients added to, in California, their band list. And then they made this big fanfare of like, products in California are now safer because of us in the EWG. And then mm. you actually go and look at the band list and none of these ingredients are actually used in cosmetics. They had all been phased out. So it, That's so- it was just so misleading and because this is what I I actually recently did my own MLM post and people, especially for Beauty Counter, got so mad because of all the all the good work that Beauty Counter was doing in the industry. And and so like to me, when I look at that, it's all kind of performative and it's not going to actually improve the safety or sustainability of a product. And actually, when we're putting this much work into things that don't really matter, we're taking away from the work that needs to be done. We have a lot to do with sustainable development. Yes. Like focus the efforts on things that actually need change. Right. Like if these people were as passionate as they are about, you know, posting misleading types of information all over the place, like we would be a our society would be so much better off. Right. It's like so crazy. And something else, my final my final thing that I'll say about Beauty Counter, because it came up on the debate that I was a part of, where I said that I don't think brands who claim clean can say that they are ethical because the brand or the claim clean is a denigrating claim to imply that the rest of products on the market are dirty. And so you're selling your product via fear. That is not an ethical marketing strategy. And Mm -hmm. so Lindsay obviously got very mad at me for saying that. (laughs) Uh, But then she went on to say that uh, as a part of their ethics, she thinks it's unethical that People who are of color and who are disadvantaged disproportionately have a higher risk of chemical exposure or toxic chemical exposure, which is true. That's true. But the way that she has then spun it, spun this fact around to then use it as a marketing ploy for a cosmetic product where that is not where the the real issues are there. Not at all. 
we have we have health disparity we have food food like deserts where people can't actually access food there are like really large issues there and to use that to sell a product okay my final statement and please don't sue me but that is in my opinion like abhorrent that's gross so anyways i'm not the biggest fan of beauty People I'll stop there. The listeners are probably like, ooh, I need some popcorn for this. <laughs> you know, they were on my radar only because, well, firstly, I was really annoyed for months after with this debate that I was a part of, just the fact that the like false equivalency of experts, this happens constantly in the cosmetics industry, and then it just mm-hmm. confuses, it confuses in the same way of giving a platform to a non-scientist in an environmental science for climate debates. Mm-hmm. We see that is true. It's the same when yeah. you give non-experts a platform alongside the legitimate experts. Yeah. yeah. You're you're misleading the public to think that these people actually their their voices are in line with like half the evidence when it's actually like a very small minority of relevant experts. Okay, I'll you stop. Know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but in, oh my gosh, it, it it fires me up too because this is just a huge problem with the with the quote uh, wellness industry as a whole. Like I oh my gosh, I could talk for hours about how much I despise the wellness industry and like it, it's all this there the food industry alongside the cosmetic industry alongside the this, you know, I, this diet culture of like, oh, get this product. It's going to make you skinnier and and all this BS out there, right? It's just all it's doing. I guess what makes me the most mad is that women, right? Feel shame when they can't buy a certain, I don't know, food for their child because they were told they are being marketed to that this product that's organic is better for them. And then they feel shame when they can't afford it. And they feel like they're harming their children, which is not, first of all, nothing is a mother shouldn't have to worry about that. We have enough things to worry about. And then you go to buy your kid shampoo and then you worry because you, you know, you don't, you can't buy the one that's has these, you know, sulfate-free, paraben-free, what all these, all these claims on the bottle because it's like $3 more. And then you have shame about that. And then you go and you, you go to try to buy something else. And it's just like this whole industry, it's like bonkers to me that it, it can even exist legally because it's, it's literal smoke and mirrors that they're selling to people that just fall for it because they don't know any better. And I'm going to be honest, I was one of those people. I mean, it wasn't until I started this podcast where I started talking to p- other people outside of like my own industry. Like emergency medicine is is definitely like in and of itself its own thing. And I know nothing about, Jen, like what you're talking about when it comes to, you know, cosmetic science. I just, I don't know anything about it. And when you actually dive deep and break it all down, it's like, what in the hell is happening, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, and you know, when you said clean beauty and you have a real, real problem with that being an ethical term, and then you look to the food industry and I had talked with Aaron from Food Science Babe, for those listening, um, when we did our podcast together about dirt, the dirty dozen and that there's that word again, dirty. These mm-hmm. foods are dirty. We're, we're told that these foods are dirty when in fact that is not true. And it's just like, it's so hard too because it's like the experts that are in the field that know the most about this stuff, first of all, are busy doing their jobs, right? So first of all, they're busy doing what they were 
what they're educated to do. And they don't have all this time to go break down what all of these non-experts are trying to sell or do. And and we are, quite frankly, just way outnumbered when it comes to how many of us there are and then how many are trying to, you know, sell all of the, these different products, whether it's, you know, an organic banana or, you know, this, this cosmetic product that, that doesn't have all of these things that we're not even told that we even need to be worried about. But anyway, the whole industry, <laughs> the wellness industry <laughs> drives me crazy. Yeah. I just wanted to add to this, and perhaps this came up on Aaron's podcast. There was quite a few studies, at least, showing how denigrating claims regarding organic versus conventional produce for people who are uh, like economically disadvantaged led to less purchasing of fruits and vegetables, which is a problem. Like, right. Yes. So yes. People we need talk, yeah. more fruits and vegetables. Yeah. So, okay. That came up. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. the other, the other facet is the infodemic is far reaching. These are like deep rooted societal issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we're seeing with like, this is, this is far beyond cosmetics and food with like the impact of social media and, mm-hmm. and false experts and, oh. and like people, it's really it's really hard because like we have issues with like science literacy and critical thinking and people really understanding what those what those are about but then also people kind of experts going out of their lane to talk about things that okay so for example someone of your background which there's no shortage of this going and talking about all the endocrine disruptors in cosmetics Mm -hmm. like what do you know about that? Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you know about the regulations? But then people yeah. don't realize that there are, there are cosmetic chemists that that actually know, like, they are the relevant experts or specific because there are also toxicologists that will go chime in about cosmetic product safety, but then they mm-hmm. have no background in the regulatory framework. So how mm-hmm. can you chime in when you don't know the dosages at which these chemicals are present in formulations? So, like... There are specific cosmetic regulatory toxicologists. Those are the legitimate experts. But then how do you, like at some point you have to trust people because you can't know everything as an uh, individual without a background. Like mm-hmm. I I know like nothing about <laughs> what you do. Like I would have to trust someone. <laughs> yeah. But how do you know which experts are trustworthy? Right. And so that, then that comes with, with like critical thinking. It's, it's really hard. There's a lot of information out there. How do you navigate as an average person? It's hard. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think one of my biggest pet peeves within the last two years when it comes to uh, COVID and, you know, the vaccine and all of that is the people that would come at me, you know, saying, well, Dr. So-and-so said that's not true. And so I would kindly say, okay, can you point me in the direction of where Dr. So-and-so is, you know, talking about this information? And then I would go over to their profile, do some digging. And they're not a medical doctor. They have a doctorate in something that is not even health or medical related. And they're just saying they're a doctor. I have a real, real problem with that. That drives me up a wall because you are, you're spreading misinformation. First of all, you're responsible for all the lives that won't get vaccinated because of your misinformation. And you're claiming to be someone you are not, right? It took me an hour to dig through all of your garbage to find out that you weren't even, you didn't, you have a doctorate of something that's not even related to the health and medical field, you know, and then here you are spewing all of this 
medical information and people think you're a doctor. You know what I mean? And that's the problem with social media is that you do. You have all these fake experts. You have no idea what their actual expertise is in many cases. I mean, they could just be lying too. You don't know these people, you know, from your ass from your elbow. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, unless you know the person in real life, you know, they could be claiming they're somebody they're not. And to make things super hard is the the misinformation around COVID-19 or the misinformation around cosmetic sciences sciences is not limited to people who aren't in their lane. I have seen misinformation spread by medical doctors regarding vaccines, regarding uh, clean, regarding whatever that probably is kind of within the lane, like clean medicine. Did you see mm-hmm. that come up this past year? <laughs> like just such a BS. But but there are like physicians backing this up. On the flip side, there are cosmetic chemists. I've seen uh, there's one girl from a organized associ- or association that I am a part of for cosmetic chemists mm-hmm. that she had this whole like a whole fear mongering post. Uh, she eventually deleted it because a bunch of other cosmetic chemists came in to be like, what are you doing? Why did you say that? <laughs> she eventually deleted her post, but she is a cosmetic chemist. She has like, she has like four master's degrees and she's going and saying this just because you are educated does not necessarily mean that you're going to be right. And that's what's so scary. And that's what I think so many people are so confused because, well, here, okay. So say you have, I don't know, uh, 5,000 really well-trained, educated physicians, right? And they're all saying the same thing, okay, about, you know, the vaccine, okay. And then you have, you'll have maybe, maybe, I don't know, three to five really loud people that have the same degree, same amount of education, and they will take to the social media and be the loudest on there saying, don't take the vet, whatever it is, right? And because they're the loudest, then it instills fear into all of these people that, of course, aren't the experts. They're trying to gain information from the experts. And they think, oh my gosh, well, if this person is saying don't do it, then I must not do it. But then you don't realize that that number is actually so incredibly minuscule of the people that you know are saying not to do something, but they're the loudest, right? And that's what I've seen is like, I know an infinite amount of like medical professionals, whether they're nurses, doctors, NPs, PAs, uh, respiratory therapists, uh, PC, everybody involved in, you know, medical care in the hospitals. Like everybody I know has gotten vaccinated. I don't, I don't personally know someone who has not. And so, you know, when you tell me Dr. So-and-so is saying not to, well, that person is, is, is the loudest in the room. But let me tell you, there are another hundred thousand people that are in the medical profession here to tell you the opposite of what that one person is saying. So I think it's also important to just see, like, feel out the room. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're not all going to be giving our kids the vaccine if we weren't absolutely 100% positively sure that it was safe. I mean, who would do that? Especially, you know, well-educated, trained, prof- like, medical professionals, you know? Well, I think I think this speaks to, because I brought this up initially, like, the, the societal issues with critical thinking and science literacy. And this actually kind of speaks to a recent study that was published this year by O'Brien et al. in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology around trust in science, the mm. issues there and why it's really important that 
to arm people with the ability to not fall into pseudoscience, that Mm -hmm. trust has to be paired with science literacy and critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that there's a thing that's the body of evidence. You need to look at all the studies out there because not every study is going to be as good as the next. You can't just cherry pick a study that confirms your bias. That is that that's pseudoscience. And so people don't understand that. And so when somebody makes these bold claims and then it feeds into their biases and they they're just like, "Oh, that must be right." Mm-hmm. And 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 so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deep-rooted societal issues. Yeah, and well, and I've said this before too. In my stories, it it, you need a very lengthy education to be able to pick apart a to be able to pick apart scientific literature, right? Like these studies are not something that the lay public should be able to pick apart and interpret. Right. They're just not. You know, my husband has gone through an incredible amount of training, incredible, for years and years and years to be able to produce research and be able to interpret research. Right. The person that went to school to even to be a lawyer or to to do uh, to be a teacher, those people are not able to interpret scientific literature the way that somebody who is trained to do so. And so, yeah, like you said, I mean, if you're trying to, if you say, okay, I don't believe in the vaccine. I think it does X, Y, and Z. All you have to do is go onto Google and you will find a study that proves your bias. hundred percent. I guarantee it. I guarantee you will. Is that study relevant? Is it, is it peer reviewed? Has it been actually like taken off? Like there's so many different things you need to look at. And People don't realize that. They just find something that confirms their bias and then they run with it. And, oh, well, you know, you see this article, you see this study, this confirms that the vaccine is bad, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And to make things like, to make things super confusing, I think it's a little bit better in medicine because there are so many physicians to like chime in uh, for, I'm just thinking about what's on the news. For example, on the CBC. Uh, you know, their their coverage of COVID-19 has been quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have a lot of very legitimate uh, epidemiologists and virologists and other physicians chime in to to talk. But then then when they start when they start talking about cosmetic sciences, they mm. get it wrong like all the time because yeah. it's not as I guess there there's not as many experts for them to reach out to. And, you know, most people don't, most people aren't aware of like the nuances. Why would they be the nuances of cosmetic sciences and all the layers of expertise behind products on the market. So then they go and they go and ask when they're, when they're talking about a cosmetic science topic, uh, they go and ask people who, who really don't have relevant expertise constantly. And so like, no wonder people think that cosmetic products are unsafe because this is what's in the media. <laughs> it's it's overwhelming. Yeah. All right. I have two personal questions for you. Well, I'm not personal. I mean, this is a question that a lot of people were asking in the Q&A, but I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on the EWG, right? Because I actually... I, years ago, I would use that all the time. Like, oh, let me put a product in here and see how clean it is. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I have throughout the years kind of heard here and there, you know, that the EWG is not something that we should be using for, you know, seeing how, uh, I don't even want to use the word clean. I don't know how safe a product might be for us. Is that just like a load of BS or what? what's your thoughts on the EWG? Well, like it doesn't reflect the the opinions of the scientific community um, with respect to the information they share on toxicology. Just as an example, over a decade ago at this point, uh, there was a survey by George Mason University for the members of the Society of Toxicology, and 80% of them felt that the EWG overstated risks of chemicals. Okay. Mm, okay. That aside, I have gone through their their database, and I've essentially like sleuthed, sleuthed through their references. They just cherry pick evidence to confirm whatever they want to say. Sometimes they don't seemingly know the like what these chemicals are. And mm-hmm. so they'll give them arbitrary ratings in one chemical name, but for a very similar chemical name or for a very similar chemical, but with a different chemical name, sorry, they'll give a different rating, which kind of demonstrates that they don't really understand the chemistry. And, you know, at this point, I don't think they have any cosmetic chemists on their team. The addition of toxicologists was relatively new. So just an example, just because I will highlight this often in my Instagram, I pieced apart their methylparaben entry, where they just picked like a few not very good in vitro studies to support the idea that the product or sorry, the ingredient was uh, estrogenic. Mm. And then, and these were early studies in, I think the, the latest study that they had highlighted was 2008. Later on in their study, or sorry, in their da- uh, database entry, they highlight the SCCS opinion, which is, that is a industry review on the ingredient. And that's when you're looking for like a, a really good breakdown, that's the place to go. And that was in, they cited the t- 2011 opinion and they cited it later which is much stronger evidence than the earlier citations they also missed so they stopped at 2011 and since then there has been you know parabens are some of the most tested ingredients in cosmetics there's been Mm -hmm. like a thousand studies why did you cherry pick these few poor quality studies when there's all of these better quality studies, Mm. the body of evidence supports safety. Why are you taking it out of context like this to to support their agenda? So like their database, just it's taken with a grain of salt, the individual ingredients. Also, even if there are, even if there are toxicological concerns at certain levels, there will also be levels that may be safe. That's that's kind of like a toxicology principle. Dose makes the poison. Just because something's a hazard doesn't necessarily mean that it will present the risk. And so the formulation really matters. Coming back to that SLS, if you use it at a certain percentage with different things in your formulation to make it gentle, it's not going to present that risk. But that's not captured in their database. And I think that it it really takes advantage of the general public's the ignorance mm-hmm. of chemistry and cosmetic formulation. Why would, and regulations, 
Why would they know about cosmetic science unless they studied? Uh, the ignorance isn't necessarily a bad thing. They just don't know. And so I think most people don't really like chemistry. So, so like most people don't know. And so they'll just kind of buy into this because they don't have the background to dig a little deeper to do what I did and like sleuth through mm. their references. So what is their like ultimate, do they make money off that website? Is that why? Yes, they do. Yeah. Okay. They make money off of that website. They make money off of their certification. There's a licensing okay. fee for their certification. Uh, there has, uh, there's also the, 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 the point that people don't realize that they're heavily funded by the organic lobby. So I, I know this number has changed, but the, I have, I actually have a blog on this up on my website. This is something that I wrote in, I think I maybe wrote this in 2017 or something. It's on my website. If people want to read it, it's called a case against the EWG and the comments on it are telling for the, oh. for like the, like a conspiracy thinking that uh, this kind of denigrating misinformation promotes, which conspiracy uh, thinking is like, that's a growing area of research, obviously over the last two years, mm -hmm. this is something really important. Yes. Uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, people don't realize that they're heavily funded by the organic lobby. So in the year of okay. 2015, they raised $13.7 million. Uh, and their president, Ken Cook, had uh, a salary of just under $300,000 of reportable income. So that real number, I am not sure. Okay. But this kind of speaks to people are like, oh, what's the funding of the research? People always ask me this whenever yeah. I whenever I post things about product safety. Mm -hmm. They're like, who's funding it? Mm -hmm. And nobody bats an eye about the funding for the EWG because there's this like assumption that what organic money is pure. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So are there any reputable websites that you would suggest that people use to like, you know, if they're interested in seeing the breakdown of a product and, and how safe it might be like is or, or do we not really need to be worrying about that because we have the FDA that regulates that or what do you like? What do you think? Uh, that's really hard. That's really hard. Well, okay. So I'll say a few things. Products from reputable companies will be safe because they will comply to regulations and do their due diligence to ensure that the products are safe. They will do the toxicological assessment, safety testing required to launch a safe product. The issue in the North American market is that because it, it, it's, it takes that kind of common sense approach, note there are also comparable issues in parts of the EU. Small brands sometimes fall through the cracks because they mm -hmm. don't have thousands of scientists working on their team, such as with P&G mm -hmm. or L'Oreal or some of the other conglomerates out there. They don't have the resources or know-how, knowledge to, to substantiate safety, which is actually really expensive to, to do even like basic stability testing. That's like $1,000 on a single product. Now add that up for a line. And that's only one test that has to be done. You still have to do like preservative testing. You have to, you have to do like skin irritancy testing. There's a number yeah. of tests that you have to do afterwards. And each test is really expensive. So there are small brands that are are falling through the cracks in the North American market. Um, individual ingredients may be hazardous, but how 
they're used in formulation is what's going to present the actual risk. So you, you're not going to know much about the product safety just based off of the individual ingredients as that's what the EWG database presents. This is really hard for people to kind of wrap their head around because the molecules actually change in formulations when they're put together. People get mad at me when I say like, reading an ingredient list is not going to tell you A, if the product is safe, and B, it's not going to tell you oh, the sustainability of it because the sourcing of each individual ingredient is different. Uh, and then also how the how the how the brand manages their supply chain. It's going to be different from brand to brand. Individual inky inky names can represent many, many different ingredients. So even as a cosmetic chemist, it's hard for me to really understand it until I have the formulation in hand. Even then it's hard because there are variable suppliers for each individual inky. Okay, there's that. What I always tell people, just just based on all of this, there are small brands falling through the cracks. A brand that doesn't safety test is a brand that is putting products onto the market that are not safe. And I have seen many small brands not doing this. And this isn't like, this isn't me saying like, don't buy from small brands, but there are legitimate issues. If you're unsure, buy from the bigger brands because they have teams of thousands of scientists to make sure that they are doing their due diligence. And they also have the eyes of the FDA on them. And also there's a cottage country of lawyers that want to sue them. So any mm. wrong step, even if they don't take a wrong step, can mm -hmm. result in a class action lawsuit. Now there's a number of class action lawsuits that are thoroughly not in line with the evidence. For example, all the lawsuits around DMDM Hydantoin relating that to hair loss when actually that is not in line with the evidence mm. uh, or the the class action lawsuits uh, regarding talc and ovarian cancer not mm -hmm. in line with the evidence but uh, but Johnson and Johnson is going to pay billions because of this yeah yeah so my suggestion so if you're concerned buy from larger brands or because it's like I want to support small brands too make sure that their labels are compliant. So it's hard to know when you're looking at a formulation, whether it's going to be safe or not. But a good gauge is by the labels. That's something that you can see as a consumer. So familiarize mm -hmm. yourself with labeling laws. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually not that complicated. Make sure that the ingredients have inky nomenclature. So does it say, uh, does it say shea butter or does it say Oh, I can't say the na inky name. The inky name of shea butter. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> what does it say? If it says shea butter, they are not compliant to labeling laws. And so I would not purchase that okay. product. Okay. And do they have, for example, the specific, you can, you can, if you Google this, you can find it really easily, the specific things that need to be on a label. If they don't have those things, don't purchase the product because if they're cutting corners with hiring a consultant to make sure that they are complying to regulations with respect to their labels, mm. chances are they're cutting corners elsewhere. Mm. That would be my biggest suggestion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. That's right. Um, a really roundabout way of answering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I personally, before I ask you a few questions from the community, want to know, <laughs> I think I'm going to be about to be really disappointed, but that's fine. Your thoughts on biasance. <laughs> Shit. Oh, uh, you know, like their products are fine. Okay. So if you want, like, they're fine. 
(laughs) But do I like the information that they put out there? I do not. I went through there. They have this like clean beauty academy where they put like people who have no relevant background to give like presentations about one is about product safety and they have like two influencers giving the presentation. (laughs) They had one about sustainability too, which for me, that's kind of my niche in cosmetics. And that was really triggering because because, you know, it's uh, sustainable development is extremely important. But when you're putting misinformation out into the marketplace, you are detracting from progress. <laughs> and right. they also like they're a part of they are the, the I suppose, daughter brand of Amaris. Yeah. And then Amaris has all these like conferences where mm-hmm. they have panels with the whole false dichotomy thing, essentially just putting misinformation out into the industry to industry to like scientists. It, it really bothers me the platform that they yeah. constantly get. Yeah. yeah. Misinformation is a problem. Their products are fine, <laughs> but I, I personally won't purchase them. Because I personally love what I use from I, I'm a very simple person. I I use maybe four things every day. I I don't like getting like crazy with it. I don't like learning a lot about products. If it works, great. I don't like I don't care about anything else. And I've really liked their products and like I've been using them for years. But I hate supporting a brand that does that kind of crap. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, well, shoot. <laughs> You know, but wait, okay. So now that brings me to one other question. Like what are there brands out there that you are very impressed with the way that they are handling their marketing and the research from like a cosmetic science industry? Like, are you, I don't know, like, what do you use? Well, I just wanted to say with respect to Biosense first, like if you like a product, regardless if it's Biosense or if it's Pantene or whatever else. If you like it and it's working for you, then you do you. Use what works for you and try to stress less. I think stress is probably a bigger risk factor than any of the chemicals in your cosmetic products, especially coming from reputable brands. Obviously, if somebody's breaking the law, then maybe don't purchase it. Uh, And obviously, if you have issues with like the the marketing Mm -hmm. angle, which like I do take a hard stance, I will not support brands that I I feel are misleading, not because I don't like I might like their products. Biosense has fine products, um, but you can also find perfectly fine products from other people that don't do that yeah. with their marketing. So so I'll say indie brands that I've been impressed with uh, Jordan Samuel skincare. Uh, so these are brands that would fall within because every brand, every indie brand has to fall within what would be considered clean because that's the market Mm. we're now in the ewg now has collaborated with the all the major retailers that if indie brands don't meet this standard then good luck getting on the shelves or clean Mm. at sephora the the misinformation has infiltrated the whole industry yeah as someone who does psycom it's like really disheartening when i sometimes when like when I go to conferences, it's like really just scientific conferences is really disheartening the platform that misinformation continuously gets with respect to sustainability. People at science conferences who aren't sustainability experts have no background in environmental science or agricultural science. They'll chime in about agriculture. Why are you talking about that? There's yeah. more background. Why yeah. are you giving the platforms? Okay. But anyways, so Indie brands have to kind of keep their formulations within these these now 
standards. Okay. But they don't have to misinform. So so why I like Jordan Samuel, well, his brands, his brand products fits within that. He does not fear monger. He does not include fear mongering or sorry, free from claims, which is something that I really appreciate. There's mm. a brand in the UK called Apotheca Skincare. Oh yeah. Who also does not include free from claims. And I really, really appreciate that. So what do I use? I use a few ordinary products. I don't actually use that many products in general. I also use a few samples that I produce. I get free products and the ordinary products. The reason why I'm using it is because they sent it for free. Do you like mm-hmm. full disclosure? disclosure. But, <laughs> but like there are a few that there were quite a few that I didn't like, but there were a couple that I thought were really nice and now have become my favorites. Uh, they have a opacity serum uh or what's it called photography fluid which is like almost like a it was a really unique take at a foundation except Mm. it's trans it's not colored it just uses uh, silica to reflect light which i thought was really interesting i Mm. haven't seen anything like that so i actually really like it because i don't like wearing foundation that much so that's like an easy thing to reduce any kind of redness and also because of the way that it reflects light it looks nice on camera and right now the only thing that i'm doing is on camera (laughs) so like (laughs) it's it's pretty nice yeah Uh, there are a few uh lipsticks by l'oreal that i like Now, I don't agree with everything that L'Oreal does uh, with respect to they have free from claims and Mm -hmm. for a large brand, I think that they have the the resources to stand up to misinformation. And it's really, really disappointing when I see large brands who have these resources Mm -hmm. just pull to the misinformation. It's because this is what the market wants. It's because this is what consumers want. Consumers drive the cosmetics market. And so now that consumers are misinformed, it's just like, it's just a vicious cycle around and around we go. And I don't know how we're going to get out of it with, with the level of misinformation. There's not enough site commerce online to stand up to the misinformation. Unfortunately, this is where we're at. And then it sometimes feels like, because I know like these larger brands have they they understand exactly what they are doing. They, they have the scientists on their team that are also like aggravated by the misinformation, but what can they do? Because this is what the market wants. But then it, as someone who does SciComm, when they go and then partner with the EWG or something, when I know that they know better, it just feels like they're just like, they're just like abandoning all the like site covers online <laughs> who are trying to, to do something good. Okay, so uh, there's a few L'Oreal, they're like matte lipsticks I really like. And then I use prescription products as well, uh, like Retin-A, Azelic Acid I use in in prescription form. And and yeah, like very basic products. I'll use pretty much anything, but I don't like to use a lot. Yeah. All right, cool. I'm going to ask you, which is a, a couple of the questions through here in my community questions talk about this. So it's kind of a two-part question. Are there any ingredients that you can specifically say you should avoid this in your cosmetics and your beauty products? And then same question goes for during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Are there any absolute don't use this at, you know, for the general public and then for breastfeeding and pregnant women? Uh, okay. For the general public, you know, like 
any ingredient can be safe or harmful. So it's really hard to say that one ingredient is like you should avoid. Yeah. One ingredient that has been problematic for a large portion of the population is methyl isothiazolidone. And so the preservative is quite allergenic. A, mm-hmm. lo- a lot of people have issues. I don't, though. So I don't avoid it. The, so it's allowed in wash off products because the contact is so minimal. And again, dose makes the poison. Mm-hmm. And part of that is exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like most people are going to be fine with it. But there are enough people in the population that have allergic reactions to it. Uh, For me to say, like, if there is an ingredient that eh, maybe not, that would be it. Um, There are a few essential oils that have like a very large environmental impact that I personally probably wouldn't use. Mm -hmm. But like, if you like it, and you're fine, just fine with it, then don't change it up based off of this uh like it's not an absolute must but there are certainly sustainability issues and also uh, allergenicity issues fragrance ingredients aroma chemicals and aroma chemicals are in essential oils are generally the most allergenic chemicals used in cosmetics and so like if you have skin allergenicity issues then maybe avoid that but if if you're fine then maybe don't (laughs) Okay, uh, so like MIT, maybe, but I don't. I don't really actively avoid any ingredient. Okay. If I like a formulation, I'll use it. Uh, I like to be minimal. Minimal is just generally not only better for like sustainability purposes. Like if you care about sustainability, maybe the better thing to do is buy less because consumerism is an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also for your skin when you're putting so many different products on your skin like the chances of developing skin irritation just goes up and so if you talk to a dermatologist that's generally generally the recommendation you don't need 10 different products like (laughs) just a few like even then like if you if you don't wash your face and you're fine with it then you do you like don't let anyone tell you that you need a certain product okay then during breastfeeding This is the answer that no one really likes to answer because this is an area that more research should be done, but won't be done because nobody wants to do Who wants to sign up for that? (laughs) No one. (laughs) And who as a researcher is going to do that? No one. Yeah, it's so hard. So like, this is the answer that no one really wants to answer. And also, like for my clients, a lot of brands will make claims about this is safe during breastfeeding. This is safe during... Mm -hmm. Uh, pregnancy. This is what I advise by brands. Do not say this. You can get sued for saying this because you have to substantiate this. How are you substantiating this claim? Mm. These brands are just making assumptions based off of we don't have information. And then that's just blind faith. We don't know. Um, But there are a few ingredients that like there is there's reasonable evidence to maybe avoid. And this would probably be a question more geared for like a dermatologist, but like salicylic acid, I know uh, like higher percentages can be problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like uh, wash off products are 
I, to my understanding, okay, but a Levon salicylic product may be an issue. Uh, dermatologists will also typically recommend not using retinoids. Now that's yep. a very conservative recommendation based off of the fact that these recommendations are based off of internal, uh, internal prescriptions and not topical products. And especially when we're talking about topical prescription versus topical cosmetic products. So topical prescription products will have better penetration and they'll also include things like retinoic acid, the like the converted form of what's bioavailable in your skin. Whereas mm -hmm. when you have retinol, it has to be then converted to retinaldehyde and then retinoic acid in your skin. So the conversion rate is actually quite small. I believe it's something like 20%. And so the chance of retinol, which is what's approved in cosmetics, especially in the levels that are approved, actually causing uh, an issue like actually absorbing into the skin. Like we don't have data to say that, but, but just in case a lot of dermatologists will be like, eh, like just a conservative, don't do it. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's because we don't have the information. So, but I would recommend if you're concerned, if you are breastfeeding now, the risk, as far as I understand, will be different from breastfeeding to pregnancy. pregnancy so yeah. I have uh, talked to dermatologists about this with the retinol as an example, who this is kind of what they've said with respect to like, probably it'll be fine. But the conservative answer is don't use it. But then during breastfeeding, you're in a different position where you can use it. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you are ever concerned, talk to your dermatologist, just ask them. Hopefully they're a reputable dermatologist that can interpret. There's, there's also issues with that, with dermatologists saying that parabens are bad, which is not aligned with evidence, which is unfortunate. Uh, but, but for some of these active ingredients, they tend to know, uh, like, like, uh, ones that would be used in prescription products. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right, so we have gone way over, but I want to ask you, is there anything that you want to add to the conversation that you feel is important that we didn't talk about? Uh, <laughs> I know there's, I feel like we could dive so much deeper on so many different things, but. You know, like my, my end take home would be like what I would want consumers or sorry, I'll stop saying consumers. That's not a nice word. The average person, what I would want the average person to do is just to stress this is like across the board. So stress less and enjoy your products. <laughs> like, like people, products are, on the market are overwhelmingly safe. The cosmetics industry, despite what you'll hear, has a pretty good track record of safety. Despite what you'll hear, I cannot remember the last time somebody has died from a product uh, like that doesn't happen because of regulations, yeah. <laughs> because of regulations, yeah. because that was not always the case. So if you enjoy a product, regardless of what it is, just use it. It's fine. It's fine. And if you care about sustainability, like what really bothers me is brands saying like, buy my product to save the environment. Consumerism is the largest impact we have per capita on the environment. So you are not saving the environment by purchasing that product. And that brand should feel ashamed of themselves because that is not true. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they might be trying to do some like uh, they might have something for their like sustainable development, but like it would be better for you not to buy that product. And mm -hmm. then there's also like a lot of unhidden things or sorry, hidden things that consumers don't uh, sorry, the average person doesn't think about uh, with respect to some of these products that say that they are, quote unquote, more sustainable, have shorter shelf lives and then that leads to more waste and then more packaging to the landfill and and so what's the impact there compared to the impact 
of a conventional product, which Mm -hmm. like larger brands actually do a lot of work for sustainable development. Like if brands want to make a claim, they should substantiate it and substantiate it with something like an uh, life cycle assessment. But if you're concerned about sustainability, the best thing to do is to buy less, use, use less and waste less. So if you like that, whatever shampoo that has been deemed dirty, if you're going to use all of it within its shelf life, then that's fine. Compare that to if you're going to buy this organic shampoo that's going to expire on you and you don't really like, what's the impact there? So just just relax. Relax and buy products you like. Yeah. That would be my end. I love it. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So two random questions for you. It doesn't have to be about what we talked about today. And the first question is, if you could give us one piece of advice, I guess you kind of just did, honestly. I always ask people what, you know, what piece of advice would you give everyone? So is there anything besides what you just mentioned? Because I think that's a great piece of advice is just to stress less and enjoy your products more. But is there anything else you want to add that's unrelated to our conversation? Yeah, maybe I'll I'll circle back around to the the need for science literacy and critical thinking. I recommend everyone read the book or listen to the audiobook, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> this is not I, this is not an ad. I feel like the world would be a better place if everyone did that. Just to be like mindful of your own biases. Ooh, I think yeah. that, like that's really important as you're like navigating the interweb to be able to to think critically yeah about the information or misinformation that's presented to you. They do such a such a good job and they also have a podcast which I'm a big fan of, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. But their book is one of my all-time favorites and it breaks down a lot of logical fallacies and gives a good I think uh, it's a good reference for how to kind of critically assess information presented to you. Okay. So that's definitely something I need to share on my Instagram before I delete it tomorrow. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like I love book recommendations. It's like one of my favorite things. Okay. So then the second question is if you could make one meal that's quick and easy, like 30 minutes or less, that's absolutely delicious. What would it be? Oh, that's a hard question. I know. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, I'll just say like straight up, my husband usually cooks for me because I'm really lucky and I'm generally not a good cook. So <laughs> what meal will he make? Yeah, that's fine. Or less? Uh, that's hard. Oh. I know. Oh, that's hard. Uh, maybe I'm uh, – let me, let me just think about this for a second. <laughs> this doesn't have to be this complicated. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You might be the – out of 50 people I've interviewed, that's like, oh my gosh, this is the worst question ever. How do I even pick? Uh, maybe like a good seafood spaghetti. With, okay. With homemade spaghetti noodles. There you go. Oh, homemade that might take more than noodles. 30 minutes. But yeah, what, what real good. Follow the rules. Homemade <laughs> spaghetti noodles. Oh my Let's God. say those are pre prepared. Okay. I don't think I've ever even made homemade spaghetti noodles, but I can imagine how long they take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, anything with spaghetti. I mean, that's like spaghetti's what? A quick nine minutes and boiling water. Okay, well, seriously, Jen, thank you so much for taking an hour and a half out of your day to talk with me. I personally learned a lot, and I'm sure that the people listening did as well. And yeah, just thank you so much. 
Oh, you as well. Thank you so much for including me in this conversation. I can't wait to can't wait to share it. I feel like my audience will will really like it. Oh, yes. I know mine will because this is, like I said, such a hot topic and I'm glad we addressed it. Talk soon. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.